Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 68 Doomsday Part 2 I have so many questions. Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode breaks down fighting Doomsday from the perspective of our heroes to combat some common complaints and criticisms. This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insights as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Alright, welcome back. And speaking of learning, let's get back to the film to see how the filmmakers let Superman learn a lot about Doomsday in an incredibly short time frame, wordlessly visually, in a few densely packed seconds of action. There's a lot of logically consistent show and tell that's going on that's going to take some time to break down. When Doomsday winds up, Superman intervenes literally a split second later to save Lex. And some say that it's a deliberate act of character, and it could be, but I tend to take it as almost an unconscious reflex. I'm gonna more or less stick to that position across the entire fight. That not until Superman is touched by the speed force during his resurrection does he have that super speed frame of reference to contemplate and deliberate over everything before acting. I think this is a more consistent perspective for his battle with Doomsday taking place within a frame of reference that Batman can perceive. They aren't blurs of faster than a speeding bullet motion to him, and Batman isn't a statue to them. In fact, Doomsday can actually miss Batman, and Batman can actually dodge and hit Doomsday. So this isn't a high-speed fight taking place in a faster frame of reference. We're talking real-time human cognition. So the act of saving Lex seems more instinct or automatic, rather than a deliberate moral choice or thought. That said, even the instinct to protect Lex is an example of underlying consistent character. To protect any life, regardless of deserving or danger, even if it isn't the conscious virtue sometimes suggested. As an aside, no explanation for why Diana has a different frame of movement in the Justice League bullet block versus here, but that's another show. Okay, now you might say, with respect to the save, what danger? Well, theory of mind. Superman, unlike us, doesn't know Doomsday, and even if he labored under the impression of his own absolute invulnerability before, which he wouldn't, having personally experienced the atmospheric weakness in Man of Steel and having taken Zod's life with his own two hands, he was just reintroduced to his own vulnerability by Batman. Superman almost died at the end of a spear, under the boot of a man. He'd be especially in touch with his own mortality. And here you have Lex declaring that Superman's gonna die to Doomsday, who set up the fight with Batman, who said seconds ago, I cannot let you win. I gave the Bat a fighting chance to do it, but he was not strong enough. Lex is claiming credit for Batman's ability to put soups under his boot. He has some credibility if he says Doomsday can kill Superman. So when Superman throws himself between Lex and Doomsday's first punch, Superman can't know or be certain he isn't risking his own life in the process. Men are brave. 
but his gamble pays off, and he's able to save Lex from his abomination. Catching Doomsday's fist is Superman's first gauge of Doomsday's strength. It takes his whole body just to stop and hold back Doomsday's first punch, so he already knows that the monster is stronger than him, and the fact that the punch would have certainly killed Lex means that Superman knows that Doomsday would have killed, and so this means that Superman knows that he can and must use force. This isn't just some callous escalation or unmeasured action against the ugly. A normal being taking Superman's punch would die, but Superman is responding to and reciprocating the strength that he's already experienced. Imagine how awkward it would have been in Justice League if after making his introduction to Steppenwolf, I'm a big fan of justice, Superman goes to punctuate his punchline with an actual punch, and his fist goes right through the new god, killing Steppenwolf on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Here, we don't have Superman arbitrarily using his strength, but using justifiable force. So let's pick up the DVS track from after Superman throws aside Doomsday's fist. The superhero beats him back into the network of cables. As Superman flies in for another strike, Doomsday catches him in his beefy mitts, leaps straight up out of the ship and dome in a single bound, and pounds him into the memorial site. The Man of Steel tears a trail through a patch of pavement before skidding to a stop. As he struggles to his feet, Doomsday lands nearby. So again, we see that violence is not in Superman's nature. He pauses after his first attack to see if it will be enough. Perhaps Doomsday might submit, give up, or go down. Superman is not someone trained to kill, or so aggressive that he attacks without stopping. Superman sees Doomsday crumple and hangs back a bit to gauge if any more force is needed. It's only as Doomsday begins to rise back up that Superman immediately dashes in with his signature move, the flying two-fisted tackle, only to be caught. This shows us that Doomsday is at least as fast as Superman, and Superman being unable to break free reinforces that Doomsday's strength is greater. The volleyball spike into the monument reminds us that not only is Doomsday physically superior, but it can definitely knock Superman unconscious. And that's an existential threat to everything that Superman is seeking to save. If Doomsday is more aggressive and stronger, there's nothing stopping the monster from killing him while he's out. Superman can't afford to be knocked out, and the stakes get raised on the fight. We're not just watching two invincible beings pinball about, unable to harm each other. This is a fight where Doomsday could take Superman's life at any moment, and Doomsday is already over him by the time that Superman is just coming to his senses. A headlock, a neck snap, and it would be all over. In just seconds, the film has already ratcheted up the tension without tons of expository story. The film, Superman, and Doomsday all pause to briefly process. The filmmakers bring Doomsday back to familiar set pieces so that we can have a sense of scale. We see Doomsday in relation to the Superman statue, which completely towered over Wallace Keefe. And in a little bit, we'll see Doomsday in relation to LexCorp Tower, which loomed over Lois's freefall. And as much as I want to detour into the incumbent symbolism on that, I won't. My emphasis this episode is logic, not literary. But that brief flicker of recognition or acknowledgement 
moment in Doomsday as it regards Superman's statue is the perfect non-verbal conveyance of Doomsday's level of intelligence. Doomsday is not a completely rabid beast. Simply pouncing upon the downed Superman and ripping away with tooth and claw, instead you see a glimmer of intelligence remains, where the figure of Superman actually draws that monster's attention beyond just being another uninteresting rock. And we almost see Doomsday put two and two together, looking from the statue and turning to look at the Superman it represents. The film leaves its level of intelligence ambiguous, but that pause of recognition could make Superman decide that he can't risk Doomsday getting any smarter. A being with this body and that power backed by intelligence might as well be unbeatable. And so Superman takes the initiative and gets wrecked. Superman drives Doomsday back into the statue, but the mutant flings him like a rag doll through the memorial wall, then picks up one of the slabs and pile drives it on top of him. Grabbing hold of one of Superman's red boots, the supervillain heaves him through his own statue and straight into a distant skyscraper. Superman has no indication that if Doomsday develops or recovers sentience, that it will be peace-loving. It borrows its brain, and presumably its memories, from Zod. If anything conscious wakes up within the body of Doomsday, it's reasonable to believe that it would be just as genocidal, angry, and as violent as Zod had been. And again, this is more wordless conveyance of Doomsday's nature. It doesn't fight like an animal, using tooth and claw, biting and grappling, but more like a man, punches, throws, and objects as improvised weapons. But it also isn't a fully formed fighting style either. This isn't Zod's array of technical strikes and counter punches. This isn't showing any sense of larger strategy or tactics. One way to show this echo of knowledge, intelligence, or instinct might be to look at another monster Snyder is more than a little familiar with. Not so much the mutant as the zombie. Though fears of the undead go back as far as the written word itself, the first zombie reference comes from one of the oldest texts we have in the history of the world, Gilgamesh. Recounts stories from almost 3,000 years ago. Tablet 6 has a threat from the goddess Ishtar. I will smash in the gates of the netherworld. I will make the dead rise. They will devour the living, and the dead will increase beyond the numbers of the living. This is really one of the earliest monster narratives in the history of the world. Today's zombies are different. In 1968, everything changed. Thanks to this man, George Romero, and his skeleton crew of collaborators who made the zombie film that reinvented the genre, Night of the Living Dead. It's impossible to overstate Romero's impact. Every zombie film or comic or TV show, whatever, made in the last 50 years is a direct descendant of this film. Romero changed the rules. First and foremost, he dispensed with the master-slave dynamic. His undead aren't under the control of any one or anything. For some unknown reason, maybe scientific, maybe not, they are reanimated as pure instinct. Romero's zombies devour living human beings. They hobble forward relentlessly. They're dumb, able to use objects as blunt force instruments, but nothing else. Drawing on his experience, Snyder conveys what we've already been cultured to understand. Doomsday isn't going to follow Lex, isn't going to form sentences. It's a primal being of instinct and echoes of a humanity long gone. A lesser filmmaker would need exposition dumps and voiceover narration to explain it all. But the filmmakers trusted the audience to understand Doomsday's nature down on a gut level. 
a mixture of mythologies that resonate in culture and symbol. Romero keys into the symbolic potential of his monsters in a way that he was only hinting at in Night. The film, which takes place almost entirely in a mall, uses zombies to critique consumerism. As the zombies lumber through this familiar place, we see our own behavior as a grotesque reflection. A zombie's thoughtlessness, Romero understood, is the perfect mirror for our own. Despite taking the name from Haitian folklore and the nature of fairy tale ghouls, Romero zombies strike a familiar chord with what we fear, and so too does this doomsday. The zombie Zod angle is a great adaptation of the original doomsday idea. The original was killed over and over again to develop immunity to attack, done by science run amok and ancient sin of Krypton. Zod as a zombie recalls rising from the dead, the Genesis chamber and this ancient prohibition, and the deformity and lack of control coming from a society obsessed with order all tie back into that original spirit. Finally, symbolically, the undead is a perversion of resurrection the not-quite-right return to life. Doomsday is all wrong in the ways that Superman is right, a man that is deliberate, careful, caring, and human, confronted with a mindless monster that destroys. Zombies don't have high-level future-forward agendas, but act entirely in the moment and on instinct. Doomsday doesn't chase after Superman, out of sight, out of mind. In real time, Superman stays off the screen, potentially unconscious, for a full two minutes. The only thing bothering Doomsday now are the bright lights of a helicopter hovering nearby. Doomsday turns on the helicopter. He bounds into the sky, destroying the chopper, and flies into a spire on the LexCorp tower before dropping down to the roof. A squadron of helicopters flies in. A chopper shoots at Doomsday, who leaps off the scaffolding in front of the LexCorp sign and lands on the tower's roof. The sign crumbles behind him, and he grabs the white letter X from it. He hurls it at the chopper, which explodes. A shot hits the creature, briefly engulfing him in flames. As more shots land all around him, he hunches over, and orange light starts to glow in his chest. He stands and spreads his arms, his fist clenched. He pulses out energy, which spreads in a dome over the city, streaked with thin, crackling bolts like lightning. Flames lick the air around Doomsday on the destroyed skyscraper roof. So as long as Superman is off screen, let's talk a little bit about what we might glean from this short scene with respect to Doomsday. We actually learn more things than I can list, but I'm going to try to keep myself contained to just eight ideas. First, if it wasn't already clear before, Doomsday is now a confirmed killer after crashing through the helicopter. When not being stopped by Superman, Doomsday takes first blood and continues to draw it from atop LexCorp Tower. Second, we see that Doomsday is impossibly fast and mobile, and perhaps has a precursor to full-on flight. A conservative estimate would clock Doomsday at around 1,000 kilograms, and he'd have to throw himself at about 150 meters per second to make it to the top of LexCorp Tower in a single bound. And that's going to generate well over the typical PSI of concrete, meaning that the ground would give way before it gives up proportionate force to allow that kind of leap, if done purely through muscles and mechanics. The funny thing is that we completely intuit this upon 
landing, but less on the takeoff. We naturally expect Superman to cause craters coming down with all that speed and force, like he does in that Hardy's Man of Steel ad. But sometimes we forget that the same equal and opposite reaction is necessary to take off if done without flight. And I don't think anyone is meant to calculate it this deeply, but if you do, all that means is that Doomsday is unconsciously adding some Kryptonian flight to its leaping. And we also get a little of this with Diana super jumping, but that's another episode. <laughs> okay, third, we can see that Doomsday has no genitals. And this was probably a design choice by the filmmakers after deciding that they were going to create a ridiculous justification for the production of bespoke pants for a 24-foot-tall monster. But if you turn to science, both the natural world and our manipulation of it, you can see a realistic reason for why Doomsday appears without reproductive organs. The hickory horned devil is the largest caterpillar in the U.S. So why is it so big? Because the hickory horned devil has to consume massive amounts of food because Saturnian moths do not have mouths once they become moths. Once a Saturnian caterpillar pupates, it will never eat again. Amazing. So if Doomsday was never going to metabolize food again, he may no longer need the organs for dispensing with waste. Additionally, even today, we engineer foods like oysters to be triploid. Gracious, what's a triploid? Basically, that means they were bred to be sterile. So instead of putting their energy into reproduction, they just grow bigger and more delicious and more succulent so we can have great oysters all year round. You can imagine Doomsday's designers wanting all of its mass and energy spent towards aggression instead of reproductive pursuits. And in fact, the way we get triploids is by way of the introduction of extra genetic material in the seedless watermelon, for example. So to get seedless watermelons, farmers mess with the number of chromosomes that each watermelon has, therefore preventing successful fertilization and preventing correct seed formation. So just as the caterpillar loses its mouth, or the watermelon loses its reproductive seeds, Doomsday loses its genitals when Lex's genetic information is added to the mix. It's sort of like seedless watermelons. So the reason seedless watermelons don't have seeds in them is because they have an extra set of chromosomes. We've been able to produce an oyster that also has an extra set of chromosomes. They grow just like any other oyster does, but they don't reproduce. So as a result of that, they just continue to grow and they reach market size quicker. So you have a year round oyster market now. About 40 to 50% of the oysters cultured in the US and in France are triploid using the technology we invented here at Rutgers. Wild oysters don't always contain a lot of good meat. During spawning season, they're smaller with mushy, runny flesh, and their gonads take up around 40% of their body mass. For real, some could call them the ballsiest creatures on Earth. That just doesn't sound appetizing. So scientists found a workaround. They made commercial oysters sterile. They did it by engineering triploid oysters. These are oysters with three sets of chromosomes, one more than normal. This odd number messes with their ability to produce sperm and egg cells, which means the animals have more energy to devote to growing fatter and tastier. With the same inefficiency cut out, Doomsday grows larger and meaner than its other Kryptonian counterparts. Although, speaking of growth, Man of Steel's Namek shows that the potential for inordinate size is there. And as an aside, when the ship's AI says chrysalis, it's actually more of a cocoon or womb. A true chrysalis comes from underneath the skin of the being about to undergo metamorphosis. <laughs> and that is more than 
anyone has ever spent on the idea of doomsday mating, I am sure. <laughs> Moving on. So a fourth thing that this scene shows is Doomsday's immunity to conventional firepower. The Apaches unload their 30mm anti-material armor-piercing rounds, firing 300 rounds per minute and a salvo of Hellfire tank-busting missiles, each one 100 pounds of high explosives. And these do nothing but mildly annoy Doomsday, who is completely unscathed after the first volley of fire. We already suspect that humanity has no hope of taking Doomsday down, and this looks like a job for Superman. Its response to the first Apache attack is 5, another shadow of Doomsday's intelligence. Doomsday engages in tool use again. It hits Superman with a slab of the monument, and here it downs a helicopter by hurling debris at it. This shows that Doomsday can do some limited problem solving, maybe. A link in the show notes to projectile use by non-human organisms. Doomsday slinging that piece of the sign is again a reminder of sixth, its size and strength. The filmmakers exploit our bias towards that assumption and association, that the bigger they are, the stronger they are. In our frame of reference, that tends to be true because perceptible differences in strength arise from differences in mass and leverage and therefore size. The ratio of these things are correlated within the same magnitudes and therefore relevant. For example, the more you weigh, the more you can lift. But Kryptonian solar-powered strength is supernatural and off-the-charts more magnitudes than these biometric factors, rendering them basically irrelevant. When what you can lift is a quintillion times more than you weigh, differences in what you weigh are insignificant. As their sun-based strength doesn't come from their mass or size, we have part of our answer why Feora fights on equal terms with a man almost two times her mass, or Zod schools somebody three decades his junior. All else being equal, somebody in their 60s is not expected to be as strong as somebody in their 30s. But we've already talked about that lack of power difference in the past, and we might talk a little bit more about mass later. The point is, it's not a given that Doomsday's size should be at all relevant to its strength once supernaturally scaled. But nonetheless, the filmmakers use our assumptions, as unscientific as they may be, to make us intuit Doomsday's greater strength, and then concretely affirms it with feats like Doomsday turning Superman into a volleyball ragdoll or hurling the X and Lex with ease. The filmmakers use our memories as Man of Steel fans to show us how much more powerful Doomsday is by comparison. In the Battle of Smallville, Feora falls to a single Maverick missile. Asterisk. But here, Doomsday takes nine Hellfire hits without a single scratch. The difference is communicated and not taken for granted, unlike a lot of other supervillains who are supposed to just assume our threats without actually showing us anything. The seventh thing is another clever filmmaker choice to show and not tell, and that's to make Doomsday light up when he's hit. After all, how do you show the impact of attacks on something that is invincible, super strong, and absolutely naked? We lose a lot of the normal ways to show impact when Doomsday can just shrug off any attack, stand immobile, and lacks the clothes to turn to tatters, hair to be tussled, or a more emotive face. And especially against the dark backdrop, lighting up is a nice bit of visual flair 
and arguably biologically consistent. For us on land, bioluminescence seems special, making fireflies and glowworms stand out. But if you take all biodiversity into account, especially under the sea, you find it to be more rule than exception. It's estimated that 80% of the world's bioluminescence is underwater. David Attenborough on the prevalence of this power. Bacteria may have been the first living lights, but then many other organisms also developed the ability. From jellyfish to fungi and insects, bioluminescence has evolved independently over 50 times and is now produced by thousands of different species. The functions of these lights are faceted, vary, and many are still a mystery. But if we look for something with glowing eyes, perhaps a precursor to Kryptonian vision powers, Attenborough gives us an example. These lights are made by captives, which are formed in special organs below the eyes of flashlight fish. They have harnessed the bacterial glow for many purposes. We can only see them because our special cameras use infrared light. But to a predator, the fish look like this. A confusion of lights which makes it hard to pick a single target. Just before they change direction, the fish give a quick blink. These lights have other functions too. They act as headlights to illuminate the sea floor as the fish search for food. They may even help a fish to flirt with the opposite sex. Unlike their captive bacteria, flashlight fish use living light for functions we now understand. So the natural world provides us with life that projects light from its eyes. But maybe all of these examples seem a little too primitive. Well, did you know that we glow? Some new research has shown that humans can sort of produce light, sort of. In 2009, a Japanese study showed that the human body can produce light in extremely small quantities. They made this discovery using super sensitive cameras to monitor five healthy male volunteers for 20 minutes every three hours inside a light tight room for three days straight. They found that the participants glowed throughout the day. The light is a thousand times less intense than anything that we could see with our naked eye, and it's thought to be the byproduct of biochemical reactions involving free radicals. In other words, it has to do with our metabolism. It's thought that these excited free radicals can interact with fluorophores, which produces a photon, just a tiny little packet of light. Now, visible light, as we all know, is just a tiny sliver of the vast electromagnetic spectrum, which also includes infrared, which we do produce as a byproduct of heat that comes out of our body. But we're not talking about infrared. We're talking about visible light is coming out of our bodies. Kind of crazy. A link to the paper in the show notes. So maybe if you amplify this latent ability, <laughs> no, that's not how that works. <laughs> but did you know that pound for pound, you put out more energy than the sun? The sun is about 4.7 billion years old, about halfway through its life cycle. And so far, it has burned 100 Earth's worth of fuel, which sounds like a lot, but the sun is the size of 300,000 Earth's. Because of that discrepancy, you can have a lot of mathematical fun comparing your energy output to the sun's. The sun is way hotter than us, and it puts out way more energy than us. And although it doesn't really mean anything, it is technically true, because of the sun's enormous size, that one cubic centimeter of human puts out more energy than an average cubic centimeter of the sun. <laughs> Context. 
<laughs> well, most of the fantastical stuff in sci-fi has to be hand-waved at some point, much like the visual effects surrounding the Doomsday Dome attack, which I guess we'll call a solar flare for a lack of a better term, but nothing in nature looks or behaves just like that. But the reoccurrence of lightning may give us some hints into Doomsday's ability to metabolize and project energy. As we saw from the blackouts, the ship's light show, and Doomsday's birth and this solar flare attack and beyond, Doomsday Doomsday's diet of energy seems to be broader than Superman's solar-only fare, as Diana will later say. This thing, this creature, seems to feed on energy. So this scene is the first to lay the groundwork for that pattern and observation verbalized by Swanwick and Diana. And again, this isn't totally outside the realm of the natural world. While we're familiar with feeding from the sun through photosynthesis, did you know that we've found life that can live off of electricity? It turns out that bacteria may have figured out the whole electricity thing way before we did. In fact, there are bacteria deep in the ground and under the ocean right now that are acting as living electric cables. And scientists are coming up with all sorts of cool new ways to study them and maybe even use them. Electron transporting bacteria were a mystery up until a couple of decades ago. And what makes them unique is that some of them may not need anything but electrons to survive. See, every living thing needs a source of electrons to survive, but the difference is that we can't just lick an electrode for all the energy we need. One team at the University of Southern California is now attempting to grow bacteria directly on an electrode without giving it anything else just to see if they can survive on pure electrons. They can span up to a few centimeters, which is a huge distance for a microorganism like a bacterium, shuttling electrons like a little snorkel. That's how they carry out their respiration process, which is what generates their energy and which also generates an electric current. These electrically conductive cables can even connect to each other forming extremely dense networks of what is essentially living electricity, which, as you can imagine, opens up a whole world of possibilities. Researchers across the world believe they've identified at least six new species of cable-connected bacteria that live in places like tidal pools, mudflats, and salt marshes. And a new study that measured the properties of this kind of bacteria for the first time showed that these biocables can sustain an electric current that's comparable to the current density in copper wiring that we use in our everyday lives. This could give us electricity that you can grow. Some scientists think that these bacterial gnats could be forming networks that extend for hundreds of meters. And we didn't even know about these bacterial biocables until recently. So imagine what else we'll uncover about them as we continue to explore. But there are lots of other big implications too. The scientists think that these interconnected mats of complex microorganisms could be involved in the regulation of Earth's soil and ocean biogeochemistry, which is something we've never considered before. Other non-cable electric bacteria could be incorporated into machines called self-powered useful devices. These spuds could be sent into places that have some kind of chemical that needs to be cleaned up, full of microorganisms that could be genetically engineered to adhere to or absorb that pollutant, while also creating the electricity needed to power the machine just by cycling electrons from their surroundings. Bacteria that exhibit these electric properties also often live in extreme places where there's not a lot else to breathe. That's what drives them to the electric life, so to speak. This is important because it provides a model for life in other places with no other things for living stuff to eat, like, I don't know, other planets? So bacteria could give us helpful clues about what kinds of organisms are living out there in the rest of the universe. Okay, the eighth thing that I want to touch on is the solar flare as an adaptation 
of the Doomsday Mythos. Traditionally, Doomsday's trump card is evolving a defense or immunity to any attack. And while that works somewhat in the comics, it's always bothered me as a something of a nonsense power that required too much semantic parsing by the power itself to work. There are just too many ways that that kind of power could run into an evolutionary dead end and result in a weakness. But for the fact that the power was acting with some kind of impossible intention or intelligence. And this was actually addressed in some of Doomsday's later lore, that its lack of intelligence and awareness made it more susceptible to strategy. And so it evolved those things only to become vulnerable to psychic frailties in the process. Instead, the filmmaker's adaptation of the solar flare in response to attack gets to the heart of the actual concern without having to micromanage the monster's messy evolution. The whole fear behind the evolutionary response is that it renders your efforts impotent and only empowers the monster. Whatever you do only adds to its immunity and strength. But none of that really matters if Doomsday was just inert or passive. We don't really care about Doomsday getting more immune or strong, but for the fact that it uses those improvements to kill us even more. Basically, whatever you attack it with is revisited upon yourself in return, which is exactly what the Solar Flare does directly, without having to evolve any specific biological middlemen mechanisms to make Doomsday better at surviving or killing. Doomsday's ever-increasing solar flares make it futile to attack. As Secretary Swanwick spells out for us, The shockwaves are getting stronger. Every time we hit it, we make it more powerful. We can't attack. What are you saying, Calvin? I'm saying it's unkillable. And I like this adaptation because it elegantly captures the essence of the Doomsday Dilemma without an overly complicated and plausible power. So a couple quick observations about the solar flares. They're described by the DVS as domes, and that's true. They aren't spheres that destroy what Doomsday is standing on. They don't cause EMP effects that we can see, but they do light fires, create shockwaves, and cause structural damage. We know that the heat is significant because it's able to turn Wonder Woman's shield and Superman's hands and shins incandescent, heating them up at least a thousand degrees Celsius until they pass the Draper point and glow. If you want something to be the right temperature to glow in the visible spectrum, you'll have to reach the Draper point, about 798 Kelvin. At this point, almost any object will begin to glow a dim red. Okay, we skipped ahead a little, but let's go back to Doomsday roaring atop LexCorp Tower like King Kong. I don't think this episode's going to make it out before Halloween, but remind me to talk about how Doomsday apes a bunch of monster archetypes to create a composite symbolic threat. Okay, back to the top of the tower. Note, this is when Superman could have gone to Lex for leverage on Doomsday. It wouldn't be a lengthy conversation or detour, just a single line, look Lex, it's on your tower, and could bring it down if you don't stop it. This is only worth the breath and time if Lex had shown any semblance of control or ambition beyond death. He didn't, so Superman sensibly doesn't. Instead, using what he's learned from fighting Zod in the past, Superman uses the building to blindside Doomsday from below and flies skyward. 
we can imagine some of his reasoning. Superman may or may not have seen Doomsday's area effect attack, but he certainly saw its aftermath. Even Batman could see the orange glow still hanging in the air afterwards from afar. Seeing a ring of rooftops on fire well beyond Doomsday's immediate reach indicates an attack with range. So Superman would know that Doomsday was evolving and exhibiting new powers and attacks. This monster was not just confined to physical attacks, and he would have a precedent for this before with Zod. Their battle started on foot. Then mid-battle, Zod developed skyscraper slicing heat vision and eventually full-on flight. If Superman can't outpower Doomsday, he needs to use stealth and wits. If he can't outfight, he needs to use strategy and technique. Two fighters in a ring is the most elemental reduction of combat sports, but that makes one of the critical lateral strategies ring outs or battlefield removal. Changing up the battlefield, changing the circumstances of the fight is a different way to win rather than brute force or fighting prowess. And it is, in fact, consistent with what Superman has personally experienced and knows. He had no hope of beating Zod one-on-one -on -one in normal single combat. It's only when the battle goes to space where Zod is disoriented and loses the upper hand. Hardly anyone takes issue with Superman's decision to go to space. It mitigates collateral damage. It puts them over Stryker Island instead of downtown Metropolis. It was the way that worked before with Zod, and it potentially opens up more options for Superman, like a super suplex from space, and it exploits his advantage of flight while he still has it. The creature launches high into the air. A closer view shows Superman holding Doomsday above his head as he rises above a blanket of clouds. In space, Doomsday strikes Superman away, but the Man of Steel soars back and punches him, sending him even higher. Superman punches Doomsday again, then looks down to see the approaching warhead. Flying up to the brute, Superman clings to his head and holds him in place. As the creature vainly tries to tear him off, the nuke soars straight toward them. It hits them, and brilliant light fills the screen. So before we talk about the nuke, let's talk about some of those other options. And generally, they fall into taking Doomsday somewhere else. The ocean, the moon, the sun, or deeper into space. Orbital ejection as a final move is such a common comic book conceit that it's overridden common sense. Inability would be the easiest hand wave. David Goyer posited on a podcast that their Superman couldn't make it to the moon and back. And perhaps that was true back then, but by the time you're tanking nukes and as fast as the Flash, I think that's off the table. If it were just a matter of taking an inert payload out there, it may be possible. But I think the issue is more one of immediacy, one of time, based on three things. First, it's not evident that space would stop Doomsday. This is already a resurrected being back from the dead. Superman himself is able to survive in space, so Doomsday should too. Second, if Doomsday is surviving in space, nothing prevents it from evolving or recalling its power of flight. And Superman knows how precious an advantage that was against Zod. If Doomsday learns to fly, there really would be no stopping or controlling it. Superman is racing against the ticking clock, hoping Doomsday doesn't recall flight. And third, the scale of space is enormous and completely unintuitive. In comic book panels, or abstracted out on paper, a ring out is just so simple, right? You just throw Doomsday as hard as you can, and since space is vast and infinite, you can say goodbye, right? 
Except it isn't so. The instant Superman stops imparting acceleration to Doomsday, the potential exists for Earth's gravity to recapture Doomsday and return it to Earth, even without the power to fly. Think of it this way. The moon screams across the sky at 2300 miles per hour, a massive 180th the Earth's mass, and 30 Earth diameters or 240,000 miles from Earth away. And yet, the Earth has captured it in its orbit. So given all that, how far, how fast, and how hard must Superman throw Doomsday to ensure that it doesn't return unexpectedly? Don't have an answer? Yeah, neither would Superman. It's a strategy that makes sense if you've done it before or if you have concrete calculations or expectations, but it's utterly reckless otherwise to just launch Doomsday into space and expect it to continue on. For all you know, Doomsday comes crashing back only minutes later, except now he's tearing up Tokyo or bringing down the Big Apple. More or less, we're shown a Superman that mostly thinks and feels like us. And we don't have astronomical or cosmic intuitions like that without training. Navigating orbit is an extremely technical exercise. Since the ISS first went up in 1998, we've typically taken two days to transit from Earth to the space station. It wasn't until 15 years later, in 2013, that we had the maths to cut that two-day trip down to six hours. That's something that literal rocket scientists had all the incentive in the world to figure out sooner and faster, with cutting-edge resources, collaboration, and government funding still took them over a decade to optimize. And critics are asking Superman to just know how to do this on the fly, in his head, on feeling alone. It's ridiculous. We have real reason to doubt whether this Superman has ever made it to the moon, much less have confidence in his ability to send a monster beyond it, completely on intuition alone. And even if Superman were to escort Doomsday all the way to milestones like the sun or the moon, <laughs> space is huge, folks. Michael Stevens helps us understand the scale of immediate space. Only 24 people have seen the Earth with their own eyes as a circle small enough to be looked right at, not as the whole world, but as a little thing suspended alone in space. The further away you are from a ball, the more of its surface you can see. The higher up you go, of course, the further away you'll be able to see. That's why it's great to be a satellite. Here's the International Space Station. If the Earth were the size of an apple, how far away would the International Space Station orbit? Like this far away? Maybe this far away. Or maybe this far away. Actually, it orbits here, 2.7 millimeters above the surface. That's how far the stem of this apple sticks up. That's not very far. Oh, here's another fun little two-scale fact. If the Earth were the size of an apple, your eyeball would be about the size of the moon. We often imagine that from the International Space Station, astronauts see the Earth like this, but they're just not that far away. From where they actually orbit, International Space Station residents only see about 3% of Earth's surface at any one time. The ISS and the Hubble telescope are in low Earth orbit, or LEO about a hundredth of the way to geosynchronous orbit and about one thousandth of the way to the moon. Our fastest mission to the moon still had a flight time of over eight and a half hours long, and that was traveling at over 36,000 miles per hour, 10 times faster than the fastest manned flight in atmosphere and 20 times faster than a speeding bullet. Even at that speed, it would take three and a half months to reach the sun. 
So even if Superman is significantly faster, Doomsday may only need minutes to remember how to fly. After all, it took Zod only minutes to do the same for the first time and without any experience or years of prior powers. And this leads to my supposition that Superman was expecting the nuke, not using space as the means of defeating Doomsday. Now, there's some evidence for this theory. We can look at Superman's angle of flight, the speed of his flight, the detection of his flight, lining up the shot, and holding Doomsday in a headlock. So, if Superman's goal was simply to get Doomsday to space as fast as possible, we would probably have seen two things. Superman taking the shortest path possible, and Superman flying as fast and as far as possible. Instead, during this scene... Sir, look, they've cleared the city. Looks like he's taking it into space. We're given a fantasy user interface, or FUI, a play on graphical user interface, or GUI, that shows Superman's gradual ascent with a distinct arc in his flight path. He isn't flying straight up, and he isn't flying as fast as we know he can. We know he's faster than an ICBM based on how fast he crosses the globe from the Indian Ocean to Metropolis, and when he catches Lois's escape pond during re-entry. And here, an ICBM literally catches up to him because he wants it to. And a brief tangent here, because I don't know when it will ever be brought up again. Fui are essentially design elements that you see a character interacting with in a movie or a TV show. The way I look at movies is much the way that I look at design. I really enjoy it when you watch a movie and the more you look, the more you see. You could tell that the Fui that they had created was just deeply researched and deeply thought, even if it was still fantastical and somewhat implausible. You could tell that they had really thought about where technology was going and I think that kind of stuff matters. Most important thing about the hero graphics is that the viewer can digest and understand what's happening in 24 frames or less. You know, I love BVS and I appreciate the art, effort, and style put into the Fooies, but I gotta say that they're among some of the slight sore points I have about the reality of BVS. They absolutely do their job of communicating information clearly and beautifully, but they are a little over the top and fall more into the realm of tropes and fantasy. It's my understanding that this was a filmmaker choice. When presented with Fooies ranging in realism, the filmmakers opted for a more stylish choice, with more flair and personality, but perhaps less realistic. So in that respect, I think the Fooies have some canonical value, mainly along the lines of what the filmmakers intend to convey, but I downgrade any other details the same way I would any other production prop. I'm not going to put the writing by a graphic designer or prop master on equal level with the writer's script or the director's direction, right? All of which is to say, I like the fact that the curved flight path fits my theory, but I'm not basing it entirely on that. Like I said, we can use the speed and those other details. Now, if Superman wanted to escape, outpace, or dodge the missile, he absolutely can, but instead he holds still for it. Now, another issue with this buoy is that it's actually a potentially story-breaking one for Superman. It's the idea that they can reliably track the man-sized Superman in real time remotely. Take a second to consider the implications of that if that's the whole story. It means the ability to passively trace all of Superman's movements, track him with precision, and uncover his secret identity and more. Well, there's a couple of ways to hand wave this as possible, and let me just propose three, not too seriously, but just to show that this can be reconciled rather than assumed to be a contradiction. One possibility is that this is a novel technology, something that they didn't have when they were still trying to track Superman with drones. 
or even as there was an open question as to his loyalty, but something that they developed in response to the Capitol bombing once Superman became a person of interest or an existential threat to national security. Necessity is the mother of invention, after all. A second possibility is what I said way back in our Secret Identity episode, essentially carefully parsing Clark's claim that I know you're trying to find out where I hang my cape. You won't. And Swanwick concedes the point, moving on to another question. We emphasize that Superman says won't and not can't. We can argue that the government has always had the capacity and ability to uncover Superman's secret identity or track his movements. But as a concession to somebody helping on their own terms, they won't. As we've said before, when governments interact with powerful entities like other governments, multinational conglomerates, or godlike super beings, many complicated or competing interests come into play. And you subjugate some interests for the furtherance of others. In arenas like foreign policy, it's less an issue of can't than won't most times. Just because you could go to war, could drop a nuke, could block all trade in the furtherance of one interest, doesn't mean you will. And based on Superman's slap on the wrist of the government downing that drone in the desert, it seems pretty clear that tracking Superman within an inch of his life is a deal breaker and a line that the government deemed not worth crossing anymore. We don't see Superman continually surveilled by drones henceforth. Even with its congressional inquiry, there is an aspect of consent. The request that Superman appear and answer for himself. The form of question still showed a spirit of mutual respect. You could easily imagine more coercive congressional behavior if all they wanted to do was bully Superman. They could pass a joint resolution requiring Superman to answer or be exiled. They could pass legislation outlawing Superman unless he obeys. They could completely embrace McCarthyism and try Superman in absentia. You could say that this is not really different than Amanda Waller knowing Batman's identity and not using it. It may be the case that they could always track Superman, but out of mutual regard and interests, didn't. This answer puts considerable faith into institutions. So if you want a more mechanical apologetic and perhaps one consistent with the scene, it may be the case that they can only track Superman when he consents to it. So our third possibility is dodging radar to fly fast, fly under it, fly small. So if Superman is flying up, flying slow, and carrying a 24-foot-tall monster, he should be easier to track. And as long as we're diving into the science of detection, let me float another fun idea, and it actually crosses over with space and re-entry too. It's the concept of plasma stealth, how the fourth state of matter can absorb radiation and mask detection by radar. The phenomenon was first observed with the re-entry of Sputnik, the object disappearing from our scopes as the heat of re-entry engulfed it in a shield of plasma. However, the Soviets kept this classified as top secret, and the Americans didn't understand this until the Apollo missions would experience communication blackouts during re-entry. Plasma, which is superheated gas, is almost like an invisibility shield. So back in 1957, when they saw the little Sputnik re-enter, they saw the satellite disappear from view. This was top secret and launched a whole industry into possibly making bigger stuff disappear. This was tricky stuff, but teams went on to design a stealth device for combat aircraft. So how would plasma make something disappear? Well, when electromagnetic waves from a radar hit plasma, it's absorbed. 
a plasma can absorb all the energy of an incoming radar wave. Turns out that stealth plasma is far better than radar absorbing material because it's tunable and has a wide band. While I don't think any of this was contemplated by the filmmakers or ever considered in the Superman mythos, it's an interesting way to explain Superman's frequent flying intervention without constant tracking and surveillance. Either using heat vision, a constant solar flare, or incredible speed, he uses an envelope of plasma and ionized gas to absorb radiation and reduce his radar signature. Of course, Superman's force field is quasi-magical and already absorbs various forms of energy and radiation. A man of steel when Superman was hit by a Kryptonian dropship weapon, the attack didn't bounce off or go through, it was absorbed. And certainly we'll see the same with the point-blank nuke. Since Superman can metabolize radiation and has senses that can see and detect all spectrums and has a force field that makes him invulnerable to radiation, it's possible that he just subconsciously quote-unquote eats signals so that he's invisible to radar. So stealth might just be one of his powers. And hopefully again, you understand that I'm just enjoying this exercise, not insisting upon these mechanical answers as the actual truth. Okay, back to the nuke. So Superman wasn't flying as fast as he could, and that could be evidenced by the fact he intended to bait out the nuke. A real-world detail that BVS gets right is how quickly we can go from the president's command to launch. We can go straight to Key Red, Mr. President. Not yet. Are you crazy? They're high enough that we can nuke them with no casualties, sir. One casualty, Mr. President. Superman. <sighs> God have mercy on us all. Here's what would actually happen. The president must first discuss the plan with a group of military and civilian advisors. That group includes the Pentagon's deputy director of operations and the head of U.S. Strategic Command. Anyone else in the group is at the president's discretion. The call either takes place in the White House Situation Room or the president can be patched in on a secure line. Some of the advisors may try to change the president's mind or even resign in protest, but ultimately the Pentagon must do whatever the commander-in-chief orders. That meeting with advisors can be as short as 30 seconds. Next, the president gives the order to launch. But before the Pentagon can prepare the launch order, it must first verify that the person ordering the strike is indeed the president. An officer in the Pentagon's war room reads what's known as a challenge code. The president retrieves the biscuit, a laminated card the president or a military aide carries at all times, and finds the matching response to the challenge code. Once the codes match, the launch order goes out. At this point, only about two to three minutes may have passed since the initial conference call. Within seconds, a submarine and five ICBM crews in various underground bunkers receive the launch orders. They open safes and compare their sealed authentication system codes to those sent by the war room. This will confirm that the order is authentic. If the codes match, the crews enter the war plan number into their launch computers. From here, there is no turning back. It's been as little as five minutes from the time the president decided to launch a nuclear missile to the time the missile or missiles blast out of their silos. Once it fires, a missile and its warhead cannot be called back. So Superman makes time for the order to be given and for the missile to catch up. So if Superman disagreed with the nuke, there are endless number of ways that Superman could have dodged, disabled, or denied the nuke in order to continue with the plan of ejecting Doomsday, if that was his intention. If Superman was confident in a ring-out strategy, he could have frustrated the military's efforts and continued to push Doomsday on into the sky. Instead, what does Superman do? When he sees the nuke, he grabs Doomsday to hold it in place, to make sure the nuke hits 
hits its target. Superman wants the nuke to hit because he thinks it has a better chance of taking out Doomsday than trying to get to deep space or to have a fist fight in the sky. And this is supported by the fact that Superman bothered to hold Doomsday still. They're in space and Doomsday is tumbling and Superman has imposed his will upon Doomsday in a way that he was never able to do with Zod. So I can see why people would think, oh, all Superman has to do is keep doing that and all will be well. After all, if Doomsday is entirely without defense against battlefield removal, why then did Superman bother to hold Doomsday in place? If we accept that Superman wants the nuke to hit and Doomsday can't direct himself in space, why wouldn't Superman just fly away and let the nuke do its thing? Why did Superman see the nuke, then decide he needs to hold Doomsday? Superman holds Doomsday because Superman doesn't deem Doomsday defenseless. As deformed as Doomsday may be, he is still a crypto. And at least two Kryptonians Superman knows of have learned to fly, and Doomsday is borrowing the body and the brain of one of those former flying Kryptonians. The very forces and abilities that give Superman a temporary advantage at this moment, the gift of flight, isn't so obviously foreclosed from Doomsday. Doomsday may not seem intelligent, but it still fights with a closed fist, holds and throws, and later it counters and combos. Despite its appearance, it doesn't claw, bite, tear, twist, slap or suffocate. It fights like a fighter, like Zod, far more than it fights like an untamed animal. And if that's how it fights, how long before it recalls more of Zod's talents? Forget comic book canon for a second, since that's unknown to Superman and his decision making. What exactly stops Doomsday from flying? Superman holds Doomsday because there's a very real possibility that the nuke inspires Doomsday to fly, or potentially remember heat vision to shoot it down, or even without any old powers, the solar flare already shown is more than enough to intercept the nuke. The idea of Doomsday evolving defenses is evident in Superman trying to hold Doomsday in a headlock, covering one eye and allowing the nuke to hit him. You can see Superman applying all of the lessons of the past. His headlock on Zod was the one time he had the upper hand. He can't break Doomsday's neck, but he can keep it looking away from the nuke, because he knows he can take it by surprise based on how he sent it skyward. And because Superman's afraid of Doomsday looking back and lancing the missile with heat vision, intercepting it with a flare, or dodging it with suddenly developed flight, Superman looks back to make sure everything is aligned and still takes the hit. Surely, a man faster than a speeding bullet could have sped away at the last second, right? But that's just it. Superman is worried that anything he can do, Doomsday could potentially do as well or better. If he speeds away, what's stopping Doomsday from suddenly having speed and dodging as well? Superman Superman instead willingly takes the calculated risk and makes the brave sacrifice in the hopes that the nuke might stop Doomsday, even if it ends him in the process too, and frankly, it nearly does. He certainly revives and recovers, but the filmmakers make the decision to show that Superman doesn't just shrug it off. But focusing on what Superman learns, after the nuke goes off, Superman learns a couple more things. He learns that he's more vulnerable to nukes than Doomsday, that Doomsday gets empowered by them, evolves from them, and when the nuke goes off, Doomsday gets a head start on Earth over Superman. He also learns that the military is willing and able to use nukes if they get clear of the city. Superman isn't psychic, doesn't know that the failure to kill Doomsday with a nuke once means that the military will stop trying to nuke them. So after the first nuke, this explains why Superman doesn't try to take Doomsday back into space or into the ocean or other similar suggestions. First, now that Doomsday has evolved, it's not clear 
that Superman can impose his will upon Doomsday like he did before. And second, Doomsday has developed heat vision, which proves Superman's fears possible. Zod had heat vision only shortly before he determined how to fly, and Doomsday could be only moments away from the same development. That takes ring out strategies off the table as viable finishers, and makes moving Doomsday to the ocean to stem collateral a delay tactic that might just inspire Doomsday to remember flight. They have to finish Doomsday, not just draw out the fight to where Doomsday may develop more and more powers. Third, it puts a ceiling on where Superman can realistically take Doomsday. Even if Superman can still move Doomsday, the military has shown that they will nuke once they're clear of the city, and from Superman's perspective, he doesn't know if they know what he does, which is that Doomsday seems to get more powerful with each nuke, and that it leaves Doomsday completely unattended while Superman recovers. Taking Doomsday to the ocean is just inviting another nuke to power up Doomsday. Taking Doomsday to space means juggling a nuclear response, an evolved Doomsday with heat vision, and the fear that Doomsday may be developing flight. Imagine a dilemma set by Doomsday disabling a nuke and sending it hurtling back towards innocence in one direction, while Doomsday heads back towards the Earth in another direction. So it makes sense to keep the fight where it was, and where it had the best possibility of ending faster. As smoke clears around Doomsday, he tears skin off his shoulders, his vertebrae jet from his back, and bones protrude all over his body like spikes. He eyes his hand, then pounds his fist into the ground. As orange glows from within him, thin streaks of light shoot off his body. He tips his head back, his eyes blazing with bright orange light. He shoots his heat vision straight up into the sky, then pulses out a dome of energy. So let's talk a little bit about the Kryptonian response to getting hit by a nuke and how the filmmakers again convey to us what we need to know wordlessly. Doomsday's response to the attack lets us know that solar flares are only going to get worse. It shows us that spikes burst out from its wounds in response, so when its hand gets replaced by a spike, we aren't left scratching our heads. It's already been signaled to us earlier. And Doomsday's regeneration lets us know that this is in Kryptonian code, so again, we aren't taken aback when Superman shows off his regeneration as well. The nuke shows off their durability and the nature of their invulnerability, a feat that's arguably more impressive than facing the heat of the sun. Asterisk. Our sun isn't even close to being the hottest thing in the universe. I mean, sure, 15 million Kelvin is pretty incredible, but the peak temperature reached during a thermonuclear explosion is 350 million Kelvin. Even the coolest places on the sun's surface are hot enough to melt every compound that humans have ever found, created, or even predicted. This shows us that Superman's durability is based on a magic force field and not material science, because nothing composed of matter could withstand a point-blank nuke. Superman's durability doesn't come from density or composition, strength that would be constant across circumstance regardless of radiation or atmosphere, but from a field which can be compromised or withdrawn. He the same as any other man with his build. Superman going gaunt in response to getting hit by a nuke is obviously an homage to The Dark Knight Returns, but it also provides a mechanical hint behind one of the most common queries into the Superman mythos. How does a man who can lift anything get the muscles of a bodybuilder? Analogizing Superman to human muscle men, right there in the name bodybuilder is the issue. Muscles are built. Muscles need your constant attention because the way you treat them on a daily basis determines whether they will wither or grow. Your muscle fibers undergo another kind of cellular change. As you expose them to stress, they experience microscopic damage. 
which in this context is a good thing. In response, the injured cells release inflammatory molecules called cytokines that activate the immune system to repair the injury. This is when the muscle building magic happens. The greater the damage to the muscle tissue, the more your body will need to repair itself. The resulting cycle of damage and repair eventually makes muscles bigger and stronger as they adapt to progressively greater demands. Since our bodies have already adapted to most everyday activities, those generally don't produce enough stress to stimulate new muscle growth. So to build new muscle, a process called hypertrophy, our cells need to be exposed to higher workloads than they are used to. In fact, if you don't continuously expose your muscles to some resistance, they will shrink, a process known as muscular atrophy. In contrast, exposing the muscle to a high degree of tension, especially while the muscle is lengthening, also called an eccentric contraction, generates effective conditions for new growth. It is with muscles as it is with life. Meaningful growth requires challenge and stress. So people ask if Superman is too strong to experience resistance and too invincible to receive the microscopic damage to repair, how can he be as big as he is? We turn to exercise to bulk up because that's what we know. But if you broaden your biological horizons, you'll see exercise isn't really a factor for most animals. You should actually limber up, especially if we're going down that hill. It is very important. I don't believe in it. You ever see a lion limber up before it takes down a gazelle? Hmm. Muscle wasting, fat storage, obesity, etc. can be driven more by biology than behavior. Hibernating bears, for example, will be inactive for months without impacting their muscles. I've always been fascinated with brown bears because they have this ability to hibernate for six months and uh, do this without any harm to their organ functions. When bears hibernate, they exclusively burn fat. And when we are on a diet, if we try to lose weight, we will of course lose fat, but we always also lose muscle. And bears do not lose muscle while hibernating. And their obesity is a healthy kind. If you're an elderly person or if you simply don't exercise or even if you're an astronaut, muscle wasting is what you want to avoid. In humans, a rare mutation can result in muscular babies ripped without exercise. Less than 20 years ago, a German child was born who appeared incredibly muscular. Doctors followed his development and found that at four and a half years old, the size of his quadriceps was over seven standard deviations above the average for his age. And the thickness of his fat was nearly three times below the average, but otherwise he was completely healthy. The gene that held the mutation is associated with the production of myostatin. Its job is to restrain muscle growth and make sure that they don't grow too large. A mutation in the myostatin gene can alter your cell's production of the myostatin protein, resulting in an overgrowth of muscle known as myostatin-related muscle hypertrophy. This is a rare condition that results in up to twice as much of the usual muscle mass with increased strength and reduced body fat, but with otherwise no known medical problems. This is a very rare way to get super buff. Mice with the disrupted gene had skeletal muscles weighing two to three times more than those with intact genes, similar mutations have also been observed in certain breeds of dogs, pigs, sheep, and cattle. In fact, Belgian Blue and Piedmontese cattle breeds, who both contain a mutation in the myostatin gene, are often referred to as double-muscled. 
There are many advantages to a more muscular default, from a longer life, greater resilience, higher intelligence, better metabolism, and more. It seems probable that the Kryptonians would use eugenics to make being muscular the default, irrespective of exercise or conditioning, and Superman's post-nuke resurrection tends to prove it. If the shape of Superman's muscles were defined by effort and exercise, resistance and repair, then they wouldn't return after wasting away from the nuke. He would have been restored to health and recovered an ordinary body, not his ripped bodybuilder physique. If he were human, he would have to start over and begin rebuilding definition and size. But the fact that feeding on the sun brings back his bulk shows that that's his biological default and not acquired. Surviving and recovering from the nuke also gives us two more insights into Kryptonian powers. The first is that they possess the power to convert matter into energy and vice versa. And the second is that resurrection may be something dormant within their genes. On the first point, Superman's physique wastes away under the force field theory because surviving the nuke draws out so much energy that he metabolizes his own flesh into energy for the force field. Obviously not as a human would because no mountain of meat would have sufficient energy density to cancel out a nuke, but in that sort of magical Kryptonian way that reaches for extra dimensional energy as we discussed when the show first started. So just as Cal can give up mass to power his force field, he can gain mass by way of solar recharge. At his altitude, what remains of the atmosphere is impossible to inhale and there isn't enough carbon to justify the rebuild of his body. So it isn't coming from thin air as it does for the bulk of carbon-based biomass, but by some Kryptonian magic that lets him turn solar exposure into flesh. And this is consistent with Doomsday's enormous size and growth. On the second point, Superman's recovery helps set a distinction between normal healing and the resurrection-like recovery. The filmmakers deliberately left a wound from the kryptonite spear on Superman's face to show that those injuries would last and not heal ordinarily. And so that sets a precedent for Doomsday actually losing a hand and the lethality of the spear. But why then does the injury heal after the nuke? One possibility is that above the atmosphere, Superman is receiving a more intense solar exposure and now able to heal something that he couldn't before. Another possibility is that the nature of the nuke injury was a deeper, nearly death-like state which activated a different set of recovery genes. I made a reserved reference to this way back in our Breath episode in 2016, where I held back because there were some questions about methodology for such a shocking discovery. But since then, the results have been replicated and even observed in humans. The science shows that some genes turn on after death. Imagine you're dead. No heartbeat, no brain activity, no breath. That seems pretty final. But at the cellular level, only part of you is dead. Some of your cells are still fighting the good fight. Scientists want to know what's going on inside those lingering cells. So researchers looked at the activity of more than a thousand genes in both zebrafish and mice for up to four days after they died. Groups of genes related to immune response, inflammation, stress response, and cancer were all more active. Even more surprising, genes normally only seen during development were also suddenly active. These genes are tightly locked down by cells after the embryo develops and never expressed again, until perhaps the organism dies. So why do they revive? If an organism isn't quite dead, there could be some advantage to ramping up some genes, like those related to stress responses and recovery from injury. And few other studies have tackled this question. One that did looked at human tissue, over 9,000 samples from 36 different types. After death, gene expression in brain and spleen tissue was relatively stable, but genes in muscle tissue went crazy. More than 600 either increased or decreased their activity. 
and those increases in gene expression waxed and waned in a way that suggested biochemical machinery was still working. What our genes get up to after death is a beguiling mystery, and one we've only begun to consider. It's funny how fiction precedes fact. That this could explain the different healing mechanism, the dirt rising from the grave, and Superman's eventual resurrection in more scientifically grounded terms. Now, as a separate issue, if audiences take issue with Superman surviving a nuke, it should be said that BVS is well in line with classical canon. In the Atomic Age, Superman withstood the blast of two atomic bombs and could fly into the heart of the sun or even into the Earth's molten core. Even depowered post-crisis Superman survives a 40-megaton thermonuclear explosion in Superman issue number 9, though the blast renders Superman unconscious for about half an hour. Okay, I'm gonna cut it off right there. I've rambled on long enough. We'll come back to the rest of that recording in another episode. So thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. Son. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention?
You're the answer, son. Going back over my Boingo catalog, it's not something I would relish doing. I, oh, God. <laughs> All right, talk to us about this video. What do you remember from this video? Uh, Come on, go back there. Misery. No way. Come on, it was it. Was it miserable shooting? It? Yeah, and I deserved it because it's the one video that I did that I had nothing to do with. You see, every video I made, I got involved with. I came up with them and co-directed or whatever. And this one, I was now a film composer, and I was on a score, and they were doing this video for Weird Science, and I said, okay, I I'm busy. Just I'll just show up on the set. And what I end up with <laughs> is this really, really embarrassing thing. And of course, today, everything follows you forever. Oh, I so deserve this. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I earned this. It's like... What about it do you not like, though? I mean, what is it? The, the lack of your control over it, sort of the creative stamp or, or what you had to do? Because it's stupid. Maybe I wouldn't be so embarrassed now. It's like, it, it's a source of embarrassment for me. But I also, you know, what can I say? You, one has to embrace one's past. You're the answer, son.